You're listening to a podcast on Catholic Saints. This podcast is produced by the Augustan Institute, an apostolate helping Catholics understand, live, and share their faith. Welcome to Form Now. I'm Tim Gray, president of the Augustan Institute, and our topic for today is uh, a wonderful topic that I'm very excited about is God's gift to the 21st century, St. John Paul II, or really St. John Paul the Great. And we have a special guest. I'm very excited to have Douglas Bushman join us. He's a professor of theology here at the Augustine Institute. And we're going to talk about John Paul II, especially in light of, you know, he is a great gift to the church. And, you know, one of his great rallying cries that so many people know him by is this idea of the new evangelization. He really summoned the church to a new evangelization. And, you know, let's just start, Douglas, with what, what did St. John Paul II mean by the new evangelization? You know, uh, you know, I can think of the talk he, he gave to the American bishops at Haiti in 1983, where he gave some, some of the characteristics, but it's really something that he had at the beginning of his pontificate. He talked about new evangelization right at the beginning when he went to Poland for the first trip, but it's something that grew with his pontificate, isn't it? It did grow. In fact, you can see an evolution in his understanding of it. Uh, not radically different. Uh, for example, uh, in Redemptoris Missio, yeah. uh, which has a status of an encyclical, so 1990, uh, he said that the new evangelization is focused on reaching out to what we say is lapsed Catholics. He actually uses pretty strong language. Baptized Catholics who live as if God doesn't even exist. Wow, yeah, he's so, blunt. Blunt. <laughs> secularized Catholics. Yeah. Uh, so he said that. There's the mission ad gentis to the places where Christ has not been proclaimed. There's ongoing pastoral catechetical work to help people grow in their faith throughout. But then the new evangelization, he said, targets those who are really not practicing their faith. Well, yeah. by 1999, so right before the celebration of the Jubilee, in his apostolic exhortation, uh, Ecclesia in America, he broadened that and he said the new evangelization is the mode of the church's existence right now. Pope Francis has really picked up on this, uh, talking about this uh, a whole missionary uh, disposition that we're all called to have. And so now, by, by the Jubilee, the new evangelization covers all of the church's activity. It's a way of doing business, if I can put it that way. Yeah, well, you know, it, it gets back to, as John Paul was pushing it more and more, to this sense of identity. The, the identity of a Christian is to be a missionary disciple. That's something that Pope Francis talks about, this idea of being disciples. He uses that, he's going back to that biblical language and being missionary. being, um, And it, it seems that for John Paul II, as he's growing in this sense of, of mission and, and reigniting, stirring the church, towards this idea of a new evangelization, it really requires a returning to our core identity. And let's just talk about how he did that. He did that in so many powerful ways of getting us back to this identity that would then flow into mission. And that's right. So I think that there are, first of all, two fundamental terms to get at this idea of identity, taking the church as a whole, the spirituality of communion, mm. communio, koinonia. 
Uh, and this really becomes one of his favored phrases from the Jubilee forward. So for about the last five or six years of his pontificate. And so our mission flows from our having been missioned, from having received it, beginning in baptism. Um, and so the way that I like to describe the new evangelization, it's the way that the church fulfills the golden rule at this point in history. So the church has always evangelized. I think there's an analysis that goes something like this. Uh, Our popes, uh, actually starting with Paul VI, but really uh, picking up steam with John Paul II, uh, are concerned, have been concerned, that there's a deficit of bearing witness to Christ. And their analysis leads them to the following thought. Well, anyone who's fallen in love, anyone who has been loved by Christ, cannot not talk about him and cannot live the life of the Holy Spirit. And so if there's a deficit of bearing witness to Christ, there's a deficit of Christian life. But if there's a deficit of Christian life, there's also a terrible misunderstanding of the doctrine, which is the foundation of that life. So Pope Paul VI wrote an encyclical in which he outlined all of this, and he said there's three steps to renewal, doctrinal awareness or penetration. When we understand our faith better, we engage in a deep metanoia, a conversion, and the fruit of conversion then is bearing witness to Christ. And so when John Paul talks about a new evangelization, it flows from holiness. That's the second word that I wanted to throw out there. So spirituality of communion and holiness. John Paul said on more than one occasion that the essential message of Vatican II is the call to holiness. Let God love you, and then he will draw you into his own holiness. Well, once that happens, the witness happens automatically. It becomes not something added to life. It's your, simply your Christian life. Douglas, that gets to something very important, I think, to John Paul II. That is, as you're taking it back to Vatican II, you know, obviously the universal call to holiness is one of the most important aspects uh, and most, one of the most salient features of the Second Vatican Council, calling all people, the laity, all of us, not just religious and clerics, but all, everyone in the, in the life of the church is called and invited by God to a life of holiness and should live it because of baptism. And so given that idea of that John Paul then reflects on this call to holiness, then is a call for, that relates to his call to mission, doesn't it? I mean, it really relates to, hey, if, if we are called to holiness, that's got to lead to mission. Absolutely. And, and the first dimension of mission is simply that life of holiness. Mm. I say to my students here at the Augustine Institute, the new evangelization is simply Christian life on display. Mm. People will, they'll, they'll notice that you're driving to Mass every Sunday. They'll notice that you have a preferential love for the poor. They'll notice that uh, your, your teenage children, hopefully, mm. are going to be respectful. And, uh, and family life will have a dynamic that's different than the one that you see in our secular, secularized culture. So, and that's the the participation in the new evangelization everyone is called to now some people will start an augustine institute and and create uh, you know media materials to promote it some people might actually go and be a missionary somewhere but we're all called to holiness to live such a conspicuously uh, christ-centered life that when people encounter us uh, they say wait a minute there's got to be an explanation for this and then of course 
you know, have an accounting of your hope ready when people ask. So typically it's the witness of life Mm. that comes first. And then you respond to the questions that that raises in the minds of other people. Well, one of the terms that St. John Paul II used for this idea of holiness is ardor. And I love that particular word, you know, that, that the new evangelization requires a new ardor. He embodied ardor, and so he modeled this idea, didn't he, in so many ways for people. Yes, and you'll, you'll love this because uh, his, most, uh, his favorite way of de- describing this ardor is to go back to the Acts of the Apostles mm. and the parhesia, mm. the, the confident boldness with which the apostles proclaimed Christ uh, even when they were persecuted. In fact, they seem to have interpreted their persecution as a sign from heaven that they were doing exactly what they should do. So, uh, so it's a very, it's a recovery and a way of living that apostolic vigor or ardor that typified the early church in the new circumstances in which the church finds herself today. Mm-hmm. So you're absolutely right. But I would add, this follows upon love. Mm-hmm. When, when you really love Jesus uh, because he has loved you, then there's a center to your life. And your definition of what it means to be human uh, is to put him first uh, and to receive the sacraments, read the scriptures, pray, let him love you. But then this comes back to what I had said earlier. Uh, The new evangelization is simply the golden rule, loving others as we have been loved by Christ and loving others as we love ourselves, allowing Christ to love us. You know, Douglas, you speak about this importance of love. And, of course, John Paul II wrote philosophically as well as theologically about love, and he used the term gift. Now, John Paul, he loved language and he loved people. And this is why he was the great communicator. I mean, if people thought that Reagan was the great communicator, I mean, John Paul II took that to a whole different level, didn't he? Oh, he sure did, yeah. But let's just talk about this idea of gift and how he understood that term, because it really gets to the inner dynamics of what you're speaking of. Yes, it certainly does. So uh, God is love. And uh, he describes the inner life of the Trinity as a mutual self-giving mm. and then, of course, receiving the gift that the other members of the Trinity make. Well, the, the graces of baptism make us participants in that divine life. Mm. So, so this, is, this is, let's call it a pastoral implication of the doctrine of the mm. Trinity. By the way, it just drives me crazy. Uh, the, the only time practically in the liturgical year that I hear priests talk about, or it could be a deacon, uh, the mystery of faith is on Trinity Sunday. Trinity Sunday, right. And, and what that means is I have nothing to say about it because it's a mystery. Well, John Paul, too, had a lot yeah. to say because we are image of God, first of yeah. all. So we are called to love and to be loved. As he says in his first encyclical, Redemptor Holiness, life is not wor- worth living. It has no meaning without love. That's how much we are made in God's own mm. image and likeness. And so by God's grace... Now we participate in the life of the Trinity. And so our whole life is relationships, making a gift of ourselves to others and then receiving the gift that others make of themselves to us. This is how the church lives out uh, the Trinitarian mystery. And when people encounter this in a vibrant religious community, in a family that's striving for holiness, uh, in workplaces like I've encountered here at the Augustine Institute, uh, where there's, there's just such an ardor and a vigor and excitement about what we're doing, but it's all grounded in this fundamental, I'll call it a humility that starts with being loved by God. And the, the fascinating thing about God's love is it doesn't leave us passive. 
it activates our capacity to love. And this, frankly, is how we give glory to God, by proclaiming the good news about God's love, first by living it, and then secondly, verbally, if someone should ask us. You know, uh, Douglas, you're exactly right. When I hear people say, well, the Trinity is just this mystery, it is a mystery, but faith seeks understanding. And Revelation gives us a glimpse into uh, not a full understanding, but a lot of understanding about who God is. So it, it just seems like a... A shortcut for Christians to say, well, it, it's a mystery. Yeah, it is a mystery, and we wouldn't know it apart from God revealing it. And that's part of what Revelation is. You know, I, I think of St. John Paul II, as you, as you talk about the importance of Trinity and love and relationship and gift of self. You know, the, one, of the, one of the problems with John Paul II is that he wrote so much that so much of it gets lost, right? It just, there was just this, he was just so prolific. He was so productive. But his encyclical on the Holy Spirit is just an example of this. And it's entitled, you know, gift, you know, gift and spirit, right? You know, it's uh, the idea of the Holy Spirit is this gift. That's who he even uses the term gift for as a name for the Holy Spirit. It's one of the most profound reflections in the entire Catholic tradition on the, the person of the Holy Spirit and I think a lot of people don't know about it, but he was such a great, he was such a contemplative theologian who really wanted to dive deeply into the mystery of God and then share it. Like you said, that activating love. He just, he, he taught so much because he loved so much, right? Oh, exactly. Uh, it's really interesting. St. Thomas Aquinas has a great text uh, about the missions of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Son is missioned as Word of God. The Holy Spirit is missioned as love of God. And, and, and he says the Son is sent as a word, but not just any word, but a word that brings forth the inspiration of love. Mm. And so just to know facts about God is not really to receive Jesus and, his, and his, uh, the gospel, but to receive him and to allow that reception to be total and to allow God to love you. Now we have the two persons who are missioned, the Son and the Holy Spirit. And, you know, when, when we talk about gift, it is, um, it's, it's very interesting because, as you said, he calls the Holy Spirit the person-love, the person-gift of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and, it's, and the title of our talk is Gift for the 21st Century, uh, John Paul II. But he never referred to himself as a gift. All right. And this reminds me of a passage from the Catechism. I think it's Article 687 or 678 that refers to the Holy Spirit as the self-effacing member of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit inspires scripture, and he's always talking about the Father and the Son, but he speaks very little about himself. Yeah. Well, we can see this reflected in the pontificate of John Paul II. Uh, he considered the Second Vatican Council to be the gift of the Holy Spirit to the church of our age. Uh, dozens of times he says that, uh, often referring to this refrain in the early chapters of the book of Revelation, uh, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, well, who wrote the book of Revelation? Well, let's see. John, the apostle, and the Holy Spirit who inspires Scripture. Well, who wrote Vatican II? Well, 
the successors of the apostles and the Holy Spirit whom Christ promised would uh, assist the church and guide her through all of the centuries. So the Second Vatican, John Paul dedicated his entire pontificate to the implementation and interpretation of the Second Vatican Council. Uh, and you see the, the a Holy Spirit-like self-effacing and humility here. Uh, St. Thomas once defined humility as submitting to what is of God in another. Uh, as a teacher, I can tell you this happens all the time in class. One of my students writes a, a great line in a paper or a paragraph or asks a brilliant question, and there's so much truth in it that I am called at that moment to subordinate my, my teaching gifts to the manifest gift of truth in this particular student. Um, that's how John Paul II thought about the Second Vatican Council. In his first encyclical, he asks, where shall we go from here? Uh, and he says, well, he says essentially, the Holy Spirit has pointed the way. We Ecumenical councils don't happen very often. This is the gift and the word of the Holy Spirit to the church of our time. So I am going to subordinate my supreme apostolic authority in the church. God has pointed. He's given me a pointer. And so I have no personal agenda. My agenda is that of the Holy Spirit. Let's read and live this great gift of the Holy Spirit to the church of our time. He had that great humble acceptance in his life of prayer, but also just humbly accepting so many uh, different things. But really, Vatican II is so important for St. John Paul II. And Douglas, let me ask you this, because right now, in a lot of circles today, uh, and I think it would, it would trouble John Paul's heart to see that some people are really questioning the Second Vatican Council. And, you know, of course, before John Paul II became Pope, when he was a bishop, he knew that there was a lot of people questioning Vatican II, and they talked about the spirit of Vatican II, and that it was going to change the church, and the church was going to become like the world and be updated. We're going to throw out some of these you know, doctrinal teachings and moral teachings and kind of make the church more up-to-date. And, of course, John Paul was against that. And, and really, you could say, and I don't think it would be an understatement, his whole pontificate was to validate and give the right, correct interpretation of Vatican II. And it's troubling to me to see there's been those voices trying to steer Vatican II to be something that it wasn't, right, to be worldly. And those voices were there right after, during the council, right after the council. We have them still with us today. But what, what's, what's shocking to me is that people who really want to be faithful Catholics, uh, who really want to be orthodox and faithful, and they're now questioning Vatican II because they see people on the left using it, and they're they're, in a sense, betraying John Paul II and really betraying um, everything he fought for. They're giving into the narrative of, of, of this radical narrative that Vatican II was really about changing the nature of the church and that it wasn't really uh, in continuity with the tradition, in continuity with the Word of God, and this wasn't really from God. People are really questioning if Vatican II was from God and legitimate. And when they do that, they're really validating this radical hijacking of Vatican II that John Paul spent his pontificate arguing against it, aren't they? I think so. I, and, you know, I, I feel like I want to say we've had our prophets. Mm-hmm. Three saints, yeah. St. Saint John the 23rd, St. Paul the 6th, St. John Paul II, all three participated in the council, obviously in different ways. Uh, and uh, Paul VI also dedicated his pontificate to the implementation of the Second Vatican Council. And not canonized yet because he's still alive, Pope Benedict. Yes. Oh, I, I'm with you all the way. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
So I think that you, you use the word people are questioning. Uh, and uh, it, among us scholars, we use this term, a hermeneutic of suspicion. But I think that's exactly what is, has uh, happened. Uh, there's a lot of blogging. There's a lot of books being written. And this stuff travels very quickly. Uh, and I think many people, actually, it begins with a crisis of hope. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think that they, uh, I think of the disciples from Emmaus. We had hoped. Uh, it, it's one of the saddest uh, three lines in, in, in all of Scripture. And, of course, Jesus, in his great humility we've talked about, uh, it's a, he walks alongside them. He knows who he is. We talked about identity earlier. But he's, he's content to go unknown for we don't know how many kilometers, but it sounds like it was quite a ways. Uh, and he wanted to open the Scriptures to them. And, and, of course, he did that. Their hearts burned within them. So I would, I would say to those who are tuning in on our discussion, uh, ask yourself if you have the proper disposition of faith. So a minute ago we talked about gift and love. Here's what I say to my students uh, in class. I say, so let's, let's pretend it's uh, April 10th, so we're five days before tax day, all right? And uh, you get two letters in the mail. Uh, one letter is from Uncle Sam, and that's everybody's uncle. <laughs> and then the other uncle is from Jeff, Uncle Jeff. I'm referring to Uncle Jeff Bezos, okay, mm-hmm. the richest man in the world. Mm-hmm. Now, <clears throat> what do we know about these two uncles? Before we open the, the letter, what do we know about them? Well, we know that Uncle Jeff is always looking for distant family members to make charitable contributions to, right? And we know that Uncle Sam is always asking us to give him more, all right? So Uncle Jeff giveth, Uncle Sam taketh away, all right? Before you, so I ask my students, which of the two letters are you going to open first? Well, Uncle Jeff's letter, of course. Uh, because there's probably something exciting. Given what I know about Uncle Jeff, I open it with happy anticipation. Mm. Knowing what I know about Uncle Sam, we can put that off. What do we know about the Catholic Church, the successors of the apostles, Mm. and Christ's promise to the church? Vatican II is the gift of the Holy Spirit to the church of our time. We should open it up with that happy sense of anticipation that love is speaking to us. Truth is speaking to us. And, and I know how much you know and, and cherish scripture. I, I often think in our, in our current troubled times with respect to this questioning, this suspicion about Vatican II, I think it's chapter 26 of Jeremiah. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But at a certain point, uh, the people were getting tired of Jeremiah's message. And apparently they um, coined a little phrase. When they'd see Jeremiah coming to town, they would so sarcastically say, okay, prophet, what's the burden of the Lord today? Not, not happy anticipation. What's the word of the Lord for us coming from this prophet anointed by the Lord? What's the burden of the Lord? I think there's a lot of people who look at Vatican II that way, and it is so profoundly sad. Now, we talked about the new evangelization and witness earlier. One of the most important witnesses is unity. And, uh, and, and it, it grieved St. Paul. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit, he says in the letter to the Ephesians. It grieved him to think that there were divisions among uh, the early churches. Uh, this, is, this is something that uh, I think Christ is calling all of us to enter more deeply into his paschal mystery. And to, you know, my students say, what can we do about this, Professor Bushman? I said, well, why don't we do what, what God did? Why don't we suffer? 
Because that's the answer to everything. A charity that loves to the end. And so we need a real revitalization of Eucharistic devotion. And that means participating more deeply in Christ's paschal charity and grieving over so much loss. Uh, one of Our Lady's titles is uh, Our Lady of Sorrows. She shows us the way. And that is certainly the answer to all of the church's challenges today. You know, Douglas, today in society at large, uh, oftentimes in the church, there's just a lot of confusion and there's a lot of concern and anxiety. And like you said, I thought poignantly the loss of hope to some degree. Uh, how do you reassure people who maybe are confused? Maybe they've heard conflicting voices about Vatican II, but they know that John Paul, they, they trust John Paul II. To, to those people who see John Paul II as a hero and as a beloved pontiff, uh, a holy saint, um, and yet they hear voices talking about Vatican II, how could you reassure them in light of those two things that they hold? For people who love John Paul II, how, how can they uh, trust the Second Vatican Council? That's a great question. So uh, George Weigel's great biography is Witness to Hope. Hope. Uh, in the Carmelite spirituality, and he did his doctorate on faith according to uh, St. John of the Cross. In Carmelite spirituality, uh, the, the virtue of hope needs to be purified. It's, it's really part of the dark night. And I think we're going through a time like that. Uh, our, our cultures are changing so rapidly. And secularization has swept through Western Europe and North America especially so quickly that people are looking for a causal explanation. Well, let's see. What's happened recently? Mm, yep. Oh, it's Vatican too. Mm -hmm, you see? Mm -hmm. So I, I really love to talk to people like this because you can see their minds are at work and, and they're... God made us to look for causal explanations. This is, this is how we come to know that God exists, even before we have faith, because he's the creator. Um, and so, but I would look, I, I want to ask some of the naysayers with respect to Vatican II, have you ever been to a vibrant Vatican II diocese or parish? Have, have you looked at the holy families? Have you looked at the number of vocations to the priesthood uh, and to religious life that are coming out uh, of, these, uh, of these parishes, these dioceses, and these movements that are so profoundly inspired by the Second Vatican Council and the popes who dedicated themselves to implementing it. That can't be the work of the world. That cannot be the work of the devil. That has to be the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so there's, there's conflicting evidence here. If you choose to only look at the negatives, well, that's your decision. Uh, but there's, you know, and I tell my students this, you know, that to be a disciple of Christ is, it's so demanding. And, you know, we, you're, you're going to experience great emotional swings in your life. If right now, we decided to focus on uh, persecutions in the church and scandals that are taking place. We can do that. And then that should drive us to the Eucharist. That should put us on our knees and participating in Christ's paschal charity. But if we want to, we can think of how many baptisms there have been just today, how many holy marriages, how many retreats, how many conversions, uh, and how many martyrs who loved to the end like our Lord himself. Uh, and so the signs of the times are always a, a mixture of light and darkness. Why not look to the light? But most importantly, why not look to those bishops, those priests, those deacons, those holy men and women and religious who have read the documents, studied them, implemented them, and followed the lead of our holy popes um, and who are really bearing witness to uh, the good news. Uh, one last scriptural 
text that I, I, I think of. I think of this theme that starts in the book of Exodus when uh, many of the people um, start to lose hope, uh, especially when they get thirsty or, or, or things are not looking so good, and they grumble against Moses, but God takes it personally. God always takes grumbling against his messengers and the ones I'm going to focus on right now are the successors of the apostles. And I'm going to focus especially on those that were gathered over four years at Vatican II and the popes who implemented it. There's a lot of grumbling going on in the church, and Holy Scripture has a lot to say. That kind of grumbling is taken by God as a lack of faith. So ultimately, we're talking about these two virtues. First, people get disillusioned. And their hope is being tested. But because hope is built on faith, ultimately it's a question of our faith in Christ's promises to be with the church and to send the Holy Spirit to guide her. Wow, Douglas, thank you so much for that explanation because I, I think that if people who, and there's so many people out there who love St. John Paul II and they love and they know him as a great saint, and they're hearing these, these like, as you said, the bad news. You know, I, I think of in January of, of this year, Roy Baumeister, who's a sociologist, psychologist, wrote a book called The Power of Bad. And it showed how bad news and, uh, travels at a rate of three to four times good news. And we have a, a sense of we overweight the bad news by three to four times, is what he's showing. And all these different, fascinating study. And people are focused right now. There is bad, but there's also good. And we are overly focused on the, on the bad. And that's one of the great things about St. John Paul II, because he talked about a new springtime for the church. And if you think, here's this great pope, he's, he's calling, there's going to be a springtime. And he's announcing the springtime. Well, spring follows what season? Winter, right? But he didn't go around saying, it's winter, it's winter. He talked about the spring. And how can we be agents of the spring? And that's what we all need to be. And so on this feast on October 22nd of St. John Paul II, let's pray to God that he will fill us with supernatural hope, which is different from optimism, supernatural hope and supernatural faith, that we can imitate St. John Paul II's magnanimity, his greatness of heart and soul, so that we too can become agents of the springtime rather than prophets of the winter. We don't need prophets of the winter in the midst of winter. We need those who can foresee and be agents of the spring. Well, thank you so much for joining us on our Form Now show. Uh, it's been a great pleasure, Douglas, to have you on. Uh, it's always a joy to talk to you, Douglas, because you're, you're such an expert on St. John Paul II and the Second Vatican Council. I hope you've been blessed by this, and I want to thank everybody who's in our mission circle who supports our mission. Thank you, and God bless. You can watch these interviews in video format by visiting form.org. Formed is an online Catholic streaming service created by the Augustan Institute and Ignatius Press with award-winning studies and parish programs, inspiring audio content, movies, e-books, and family-friendly kids programming. To support the mission of the Augustan Institute, please visit missioncircle.org.